0: Let me ask a couple of questions, maybe as a form of summary. Um, if you look at the first page of your handout, it's kind of clear. That what is the meaning and the purpose of this book? And in the Greek there, the apocalypsis or the unveiling, exposing to view. So it is pulling back the veil. And uh, I've covered in the last sermons the last two Sundays on this. But let me ask you, what are the three purposes that come to mind why did Christ reveal, why did the Father tell His Son to reveal through the angel to John, what are the three purposes that kind of stand out in this book? Okay, certainly it's, it's what to come. We, we'll see this in Revelation 119, which is a very critical verse. Mom, what it says there is, what, write down, this is Revelation 119, write down what you have seen, what is now being seen, and what will take place later. So that's one of the purposes, it's the revelation or the prophecy of what's coming. What's number two, Meaning, uh, maybe the purpose behind the book? Right, it's clearly a warning to the churches. Uh, we're going to look at tonight in depth all of this, we'll see how we get to all seven of them, but it was the seven churches and there was a commendation by Christ. I see this that you are doing and I like this, but I got some issues with you too, church. And I need to point that out to you, right? And so it was a uh, revelation to the church of the things that they needed to change or they had the potential for even losing their lampstand. They would lose their church. The lampstand was the church, right? Okay, what's the third one? Mm Yes. 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 That that is that's a great way to study this. The third point of this is one: it was to tell the church what's going to happen. One, so that you would be encouraged that he he knows exactly what's going. on. He's in charge, right? And it's coming. And there's going to be martyrdom. There's going to be all sorts of persecution. There's a tribulation hour coming as never ever seen before, and. You're going to need to stand and understand that even if you have to give your life for your faith, oh, He wanted to encourage us. So the three points of the book of Revelation, pretty important, it's the last book, (laughs) and uh, it is uh, that Revelation piece that, but it really focuses on a lot of the book, we'll we'll look at the breakdown in chronology tonight, but a lot of this book is focused on the seven-year period, and as we get closer... When I, I've been part of the study of the historians back into 300s, 400, 500 A.D., the guys who wrote about this book, right, and their view on it, but as we get closer and closer and closer, like I've been showing you, these articles I have up here tonight, um, the one about the cashless society, that governments are already changing the laws that you can't buy or sell if you, you need, you need to, ha- get, you have to have a credit card. Or you got to have a chip or you got to have something because cash and traceable checks no longer going to be allowed, illegal in Israel. That's coming. India is already partially there. Um, the Ezekiel War, the study right now that we're doing, uh, we're going to touch on it during this study about Ezekiel 37 and 38, the war that's coming. It's going to be really ugly. The formation of, the, of those nations that are going to come against Israel are already being put in place. The martyrdom—we're going to see martyrdom has been part of it for out—but right now, the number of Christians that are being killed tonight, this is this week, is uh, is horrifying. And so, if you don't think we're living in the season and the time of what He said was coming, we are. We're there. We're very close. And so, when we look at, um, let let's turn, if you will, the first few pages are just a copy of my sermon outline for the last two weeks. But I want to start in page one, which is titled at the top, The Chronological Outline of the Book of Revelation. I think it's good if I can kind of give you an overview in order to, if, if we look at the overview from about a 50,000 foot level, and then we kind of drill down in the specifics over the week, you won't get lost as, well, as much uh, that you could be if you just read, pick up and start reading in a particular chapter. So are you there? The Chronological Outline of the Book of Revelation. Um, when we look at this, the whole introduction, and that's, there's so many amazing names of uh, which Pat was talking about, you know, I am the great I am, I'm the first and the last, I'm the one that was dead and I'm alive, I'm the alpha, I'm the omega, I'm the one who has the keys of both hell and... I mean, talk about identity, uh, I am that I am, you know, and so this first chapter is about, uh, really about the whole introduction of the who... And the why, and now we're gonna look at the what. And if you look at Revelation 1, 2, and 3, there is this message that once we've established why it's coming and John, what he was to do, what was his assignment, now we realize that he addresses the church, and that's what we'll see in the seven churches. But then we're gonna look at in Revelation 4 and 5, I love how Revelation 4 1 always says, Come up here. And we're going to look at LaHaye, uh, you know, we covered a little bit in the last couple of weeks, at least on Sunday morning, there's all sorts of opinions on when the rapture occurs. And LaHaye is clearly a pre-trib rapture guy. And so for, for argument's sake, if you're okay, if you're a mid-trib or post mid, uh, you know, partial tribber, just go with me, all right? We're going to kind of lock in on let's, we, we would probably like if we had to vote, let's do the pre-trib, all right? We'll vote on that one. We like that one, but I'm, he'll he's going to show some credible scriptural evidence that can support that. And you know, one of them is in Revelation one, uh, Revelation four one. Uh, if you've got your word, in fact, uh, why don't you turn there? It's good to have your sword with you every night here. And so, in Revelation chapter four, I just want to look at that, and then I want to backtrack because I think it'll make. Some more sense about what is taking place. So in Revelation 4, in verse 1, writes, Then I looked, this is John, I looked, this is worship in heaven. Then I looked and I saw a door standing open in heaven. And the same voice that I had heard before spoke to me like a trumpet blast. The voice said, Come up here. And I will show you what must happen after this. Now, LeHaye says that's another indication of the rapture of the church. Why? He talks about the the churches, the the references to the churches in chapters 1, 2, and 3. I think there's at least 18 references to church. Obviously, there's the seven churches. And then there is no discussion of any church at any point anywhere in the Scripture until Revelation chapter 19. says, we're not here for the woes and the pouring out and the bowls and all of that. We're not here for the riding horsemen. That's what he believes. And so, I like it, and I pray it is true. But let's move on. If you look at the Revelation 4 and 5 on that block, the catching up of the church, which takes place, he believes, right at the end of chapter 2 there, end of chapter 3 there, then there's the next scene is that throne room in God's throne. The picture of the elders, if you've ever been in, in a worship set. By the way, I invite you all to come Friday night for our, our night of worship, the burn. Where's Josh? Is it 7, Josh? I think it's 7 o'clock. He's probably we're in youth. 7 o'clock is when we're going to start. And so when we, when we think of the, the worship that's taking place 24-7, 365, and the elders are, down, are worshiping him, there's that picture of what's going on in heaven while all this stuff. And I used the example this past couple Sundays about the throne room control room, right? There was a, there's a big clock in heaven that has special enumerated points on it, like the birth of the, the creation of man, the creation of the earth, Moses, the Red Sea, the slavery, of the, getting set free from slavery, Babylonian captivity. And then it says the birth of the virgin birth, The resurrection, the ascension, these are all numerations on the clock. And there's one on there that says, the calling away of my church. And Jesus says, I don't even know the day or the hour. Dad hasn't told me this. He hadn't even told the angels. It's so quiet and secret. All Jesus says, seven times, and we read Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13. We counted a number of times. He said, watch out, be ready. You better be prepared. Stand and be ready. Seven times he says that in Mark 13. So Jesus says, I don't know what day or how our dad's going to do this. We know the season, but I'm just telling you, my brothers and sisters, get ready, right? So he tells us this, and then he says, there is going to be this outpouring of horrible things that are about to come, and we see that in the book, who is able to open the seven seals, who's able to open the scroll, the seals, right? And we know, John then finds out, it's him. It's the one who always was and is. It's the Christ. And then it starts, the pouring out of the wrath, the six seals. The white horse represents, we're going to look, there's uh, there's debate on this, but there's those that believe that the white horse is the revelation of the Antichrist. We've studied this also in the last few weeks. In Thessalonians it says, evil is already present, and that who's holding it back has kept him back but at that moment, and those who are the pre-trib rapture guys say, as soon as the church is raptured out of here and the Holy Spirit is Im- immediately taken out all over the earth, it gets really ugly fast. Because God's people are everywhere. They're in doctors, they're in businesses, and if you remove the Holy Spirit in one moment from the earth, what's left? It's not pretty. And so, it's that, at that moment where it starts, the Antichrist is then revealed, The man of perdition that Daniel speaks about, and we'll touch on that in Daniel 7 and 8. And so then it goes and it says, then the red horse, and this is war. And it is, when you add up the number of deaths and famines and horribleness that comes, half of the world's population is destroyed during this period. That's kind of scary right there. We'll look at that, and and he believes it's the Ezekiel 38 and 39 war where Gog and Magog come from the north in the latter days, written by the prophet Ezekiel 2,500 years before Christ was ever born. He prophesied the nation alignments of what's we starting to see on the scene right now between Russia and Turkey and Iran. We see that, and he believes that that war, World War III, will break out as a result of them coming against Israel. And it's interesting, it wasn't known up until about 10 years ago when it says, have you come to take spoils from my land? Israel now has a, a reserve of natural gas and oil right off their coast. That is, the, the, we were just in Israel, the, the, the amount of wealth that they believe Israel has uncovered as a result of that exploration. And so when the resources get tight, guess what? The kings of the east and the king of the north will come to take spoil. And then it says, my my young lions and my lions will say, wait, what are you doing? Well, who are they? Many believe that that's the United States, who was a young lion off of the older lion of England, whose flag is England, and the Australians and the Canadians who say, wait a minute, what are you doing? And that conflict goes into a mess that possibly is what Peter speaks about in 2 Peter chapter 3, the last chapter of his last book before he's martyred. He writes about a war where the elements will melt with fervent heat and fire comes as, that has been prepared for the day. So when you look at the consistency of these scriptures and what our apostolic leaders of the past have said, it's coming, it was revealed to us, and then you put it all together... The third horse is that of famine, the pale horse of death, accompanied by hell, and then the martyrdom of the tribulation saints. Nature is, you talk about nature being in a mess, it is in a mess. And then there's this group of revelation of the 144,000 Jews, the 12,000 from each of the tribes. Um, LeHay believes that they are these Jewish evangelists that just evangelize, and it could be the Roman Scripture where Paul says, When the exact number of Gentiles has come in, at that moment, all of Israel will be saved. I believe there's a Gentile clock running. And at some point, when all the marked ones have been saved, it could be that these Jewish evangelists, at that point, they go into a place. They drive the Antichrist absolutely nutty. And then we see the tribulation saints that are then caught up again in the throne. We'll look at that when we study Revelation 7. Then the seventh seal, the trumpet judgment starts, the plagues. And the point of all of these next seven through 18 is it's just plain ugly. It's like I'm not sure why he went into so much detail on this seven-year period other than to bring revelation to the fact that it's all coming. We know that um, there's this footnote here in Revelation 19, and I shared on this on Sunday, if you were here, that it's at that point that the wedding feast of the Lamb, all those who have been invited, blessed is he who's invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And so it's at that moment where the war, it's one of the shortest wars in history. Revelation 19, Jesus comes back with his saints, Lord of lords, King of kings, and he destroys him. We've read that in, in 2 Thessalonians 2.8. He kills him. He kills Satan. The, in, obviously, he doesn't kill the spirit of Satan. He gets locked up. But the Antichrist, who's been inhabited by Satan, is killed by the breath of the mouth of the one who's able to do exceedingly. And so, we'll see that in Revelation, that war, and then the rest of it's hallelujah. Okay, thousand-year reign, the saints are here. The, he establishes the new Jerusalem. He comes down from heaven in Revelation 22, and I like that chapter a really, really light lot. But then there's the final judgments, and we'll look at the great white throne judgment. This is the, the judgment of the, this is the second death. All those who never came to know Christ are judged at the great white throne judgment. And so that's kind of a chronological, what we're going to look at over the next uh, seven weeks and tonight, and six weeks following. Turn to the, to the next page, page two. And again, you can see the subjects, if you ever, you're questioning, okay, what are we doing in this chapter, it lists the 22 chapters and kind of the, the, what would be the headline of that particular chapter. All right, and now turn with me to, let's go to the, the one that looks like this. If you get confused, it's the chart, I guess it's figure one in your handout, it's a if you kind of want to lay out the whole book as to what are the major events, and again, uh, Tim LaHaye, if you look at the middle of that, the rapture of the church happens right after chapter 3. The revelation of the church, and you can see the scene from heaven is going across the top, and the scenes from the earth are going across the bottom. That's helpful because if you're, there's times, um, it, the, a lot of the book is chronological, but there are times when it's not. It's kind of like in the prophecy of of Zechariah, the first coming, the second coming is it, it's all in there. Even in Matthew twenty four, where is it? Is the second coming mixed with the rapture and and the wars? There's there, there's a lot of blending of time. Where if you take and compress a a sequence of events and you press them down, you may get that. So th- this hel- this is helpful across the top about okay. So now what's going on? So I thought that was good from uh, from LaHaye, then. Turn to page four, the highlights from last week, many of the biblical truths in the opening or the salutation um, are so foundational to Scripture and belief. And so, I just love how, again, these what Pat was saying, a lot of who he is is listed here as well. Okay, now, we're going to dive in now to look to figure two, which is the seven churches. So it's got a little plot of the Isle of Patmos, which is where John is writing from. He's in prison. So look at, it says figure two on the bottom, and it's got a little picture with the seven churches. And there was a prison where they, during that time, we're going to look at 10 of the Roman emperors who persecuted Christianity during the season of the early church here. Actually, we'll look at the, the persecuted church in some detail. These seven churches, if, I just want to give you kind of a layout of where this is. You see the Mediterranean Sea, where Cyprus is. Um, you, you see where these are all the places we read, of the book of Galatia. And then you can see the seven churches along the coast predominantly. John is on this little island of Patmos where the revelation occurs. He'd been exiled there because... He was the only surviving apostle of the original 12. Uh, History says that they tried to kill him, and they could not kill him. They actually, the the historians say, they attempted to boil John alive in oil. Now, I don't know how that goes. It's not in the script. I'm just reporting. But if he had an assignment, there is no way he dies yet right? Remember the prophecy way back when when Peter and John is like, they're talking, and Peter actually has a prophetic word from Christ that says, they're going to take you one day, Peter, and they're going to take you where you didn't want to go. When you were younger, you went where you wanted, and they will take you. We knew that was where he was martyred and crucified upside down. But he turns to Jesus and says, well, what about him? Because I think Peter and John, they had, we talk about competition. Those two dudes, I'm better than you are, I did better than, you know. Huh. Pastor Mike shared on, don't, don't do comparisons, it's not a good thing, right, today. And, and so when we look at those two guys, so we know that the word over John from Jesus is, what is it to you? If, he wants, if I want him to live long, he will, and he did. But he had an assignment, he needed to write this book. Okay, so we look at the, the location of the seven churches The seven churches, look at number one there on the bottom of that page. It says, the seven churches in John's day obviously were literal churches with which John was familiar for much of the ministry had been conducted throughout that area of Asia. The question naturally comes to mind, this is an excellent question, there were now hundreds of Christian churches planted. Why did he pick 63 years later after Pentecost, 63 years after Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit descended, He picked seven churches out of hundreds, these seven. Well, they, they give us some insight to this. It's because they represent both historical divisions of church history, they represent the church churches, and they also represent individuals like us. You'll find out as, as we go through the seven churches both the commendations and the condemnation, you'll find out, yeah, any of us could be, uh, find ourselves in that place. And so, the seven, number two there, the seven basic divisions of church history. A study of history reveals the church has gone through seven basic periods or stages. Some prophecy scholars show how they parallel, turn to the next page, this so is figure three, how they parallel the same types of our Lord's parables in Matthew 13. That's really interesting. I'll just—you don't need to turn there, but let me just highlight for you in Matthew 13. Jesus, I was looking at this earlier, Jesus is, teaches parables, right, to give teach a, a spiritual principle. And in Matthew 13, he starts out with the parable of the farmer scattering seeds, and you know that story, right? The word of God is the seed, and the farmer, and that it falls on the right place. It doesn't fall on some ground, and it's the. the Cares of this life, come and choke it out. That's one of the parables about the fruitfulness of the church and the excitement. They hear the word and they're excited, but then the cares of life come and choke it out. It's an example of what you'll see in one of these churches. You've lost your first love. I have this against you. Then he talks about the wheat and the weeds. The parable of the mustard seed, the little faith, right? The parable of yeast, a little bit of defilement can cause a lot, or a little bit of the kingdom can cause amazing blessing, right? Then the parable of the hidden treasures and the pearl, the parable of the fishing net, and then Jesus rejected in Nazareth. The last church, the church of Laodicea, the apostate church, which many believe is here now. When we talk, we'll look at these, the, the church of Satan. And I'm like, what the heck kind of church was that there? And uh, interesting statement, or just a point of fact, I understand that Zonderman, who publishes the NIV version, also publishes the book of Satan. Kind of spooky. Is this about money? <laughs> what is it? I don't know. But anyway, just a thought. I'll just leave that with you. I've never liked the NIV. <laughs> just me. Anyway, just scratch that. All right, all right. Uh, are you there on page on figure three? The, the theory of the seven churches of Revelation uh, in chapter two. They're prophetical. They're seven consecutive periods of ecclesiastical history. Some have suggested, in fact, this bishop that was martyred in 303. He had a belief at that time. Wrote it down. It says that it's both historical and representative. The prophetical elements of this there. And so, if you look at 1 through 7, look at that. It is actually the professing church. Ephesus is the apostolic church, and we'll see that. Smyrna was the persecuted church. Look at the timing of, see where it says AD 30 to 100, so the early church. Remember, Ephesus was the church in Acts 18 and 20. Uh, Paul goes there, he spends three years. His spiritual son, Timothy, is the senior pastor of that church, Paul is in that church for three years. Before he goes to Rome, he he calls the elders of the church at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20 and says, come and see me. They come to them. He says, this will be the last time you see me, guys. He goes, now I have a warning for you. Vicious wolves will come into the church from within the church to destroy it. Now you as the bishops or the overseers of the church will need to protect the flock from the vicious wolves. So, this is this apostolic church that Ephesus, in fact, was accounted to plant many of the other churches. So, it was a church in revival. They, they, it was this place where the apostolic church in that early, closest to when Jesus has been there, was on fire. But you will find later, they lost their fire. They actually left it. They didn't lose it. Smyrna, the persecuted church. We're going to look at the, the martyrdom that took place at Pergamos is the state church. The next two churches, Pergamus and Thyatira, is the papal church. It's the state church. It's where the church is now governed and ruled and run a lot by the government and the impact of what that looks like. And we'll find out that gives rise then in that dark period to the Reformation. Martin Luther, the, the pinning of the, 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 the statement against the church that had become so corrupted. That's the Reformed Church in Sardis between 1500 and 1790. Um, and then Philadelphia, the missionary church. Now, I got excited about this one. In 1730, it was the birthing of the missionary movement, the Western church going out. It was probably the biggest move ever since Paul's journeys. And then, unfortunately, I believe we're here now. We're in number seven. We're at the place of the apostate church. In Laodicea. And so we know that Jesus warns these seven churches in the time that you need to take action against some of the things I've seen, and if you don't, you will lose your lampstand. There is no more church at Ephesus anymore. No longer exists. And so turn to the page, figure four. This is a good summary. I like this a lot also. It, it helps when you go across. There's the seven churches across the top. It gives you the, uh, the timing of that. Which AD? Oh, blue Toyota interior dome light on. Anybody have a blue Toyota? Yes. Okay. Good. Pam's going to get it. All right. Um, huh? Question? Okay. Here we go, Vince. There's a key in a credit card. Okay, Okay. so you see the churches going across the top, and then you see A.D. numbers going across that top. Draw your attention. You'll notice that the last four churches, there's kind of an overlapping where you have the tribulation. You see in, in the Philadelphia church, it says A.D. 1750, and then it goes all the way to the rapture. So there's kind of a blending of the last four churches of what is going on in the historical timing and the issues in the church. But the last one there, the lukewarm church, A.D. 1900 to the time of the tribulation. But then you'll notice this is the good things that Jesus has to say. These are the things I want to commend you for. But I'll just draw your attention. Look at the last church, Laodicea, Laodicea. He has not one good word for that church. Yipes. Then he has condemnation. I want to also draw attention, there are two churches that have no condemnation, the persecuted church. In fact, it is estimated by the the church of Smyrna during that period of 100 to 300, during the 10 Roman emperors, before um, we see that Christianity is accepted by Rome, the number of martyrs estimated to be in that period about 5 million Christians were horribly killed. Some of the writings on this you know, just <laughs> make you sick, how they did it to them to kind of shut down the church. But what, what Satan found out is the more you persecute the church, the more it grows. So then he changes, he says, let's corrupt from within. And he raises up the whole papal uh, ministry. In fact, the Nicolotians, will look at that in a moment and what it means. But it is the, the, the acceptance as a government-run church. And what it brings. But you'll notice the condemnation. There's none there for the persecuted church under Smyrna. But there's also no condemnation under the church of Philadelphia. The brotherly love church. The, the one that's there. So he, Christ himself had no negative condemnation. There were suggestions. But he didn't condemn them for certain behaviors. I think that's important when we kind of think about this. And then the council. This is what he recommends they do. In the, if you kind of go across and look at the Laodicean church, these people were so arrogant and prideful. They were the church with lots of money. Wake up, America! <laughs> they had everything. What do you need? They don't. Oh, we got. We don't need anything. We got. We can. We can. We're. We're. We're wealthy. We're fine. We can see. No. 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 You're. You're actually. You're wretched. You're miserable. You're poor. You're blind. And you're naked. Not. Not cool. And so he suggested that they should go buy gold from him and buy clothing from him, get your eyes fixed, and become more zealous and repent. And then he challenged uh, the challenge to them about, if you would do these things, here's the promise. So that's a a good, again, summary. If you don't have a word with you, the next uh, three pages are actually verse by verse for chapter 2 and 3. So I want to start, I want to read through that right now. Let me just read chapter two and three of Revelation. You guys can follow along if you like in that those verses that are there. I'm going to read out of the, the New Living. And we'll begin in chapter two, verse one. The message to the church at Ephesus. Write this letter to the angel. Remember, we spoke last night, uh, last week about the, every one of these churches had a particular angel assigned, and I just felt that was really good news. Write this letter to the angel of the church at Ephesus. Interesting, he writes to the angel. The letter goes to the angel. Was he the emissary of the carrier? This message is from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands, which are the churches. I know all the things that you do, and I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance, and I know... You don't tolerate evil people. You've examined the claims of those who say they are apostles, but they are not. You have discovered the liars, that they are liars, and you have patiently suffered for me without quitting. Now, I'll just stop here for a moment. Reflect back what I said. Paul loved the church at Ephesus. He warns the Ephesian church leaders 63 years earlier... Paul warns them, vicious wolves will come in to tear the church apart. Sixty-three years later, John, through the revelation, says, I like the fact that you have come against these ones, these apostles who think they're this, but they're not. They're liars. You've not tolerated them. Fulfillment. They did what was asked for back then. Two generations probably at least of leadership in that. Let's pick up there. In verse 3, you have patiently suffered for me without quitting. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. I, sh- I shared this Sunday. I think this is the worst of all the... Con- maybe be the lukewarm church that's kind of dead as a doornail, or they think they're not. <laughs> but this one, they were so on fire... And yet, 60 years later, the next generation, they did not pass the torch of that revival. That ought to get us really convicted. Uh, I just, we have to do well with all of the children, and we have, to, we have to inspire them for that. Look, verse 5, how far have you fallen? This is our verse for the year, consider your ways. Consider your ways, Haggai 1.7. How far have you fallen? Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and I will remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. But this is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolotians, just as I do. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what He's saying to the churches To everyone who is victorious, I will give the fruit from the tree of life in paradise of our God. I want to address this again because the Nicolotians is going to come up again and again. If you have, um, I don't know if anyone's here, if you need, if you want to buy one of these, they're five bucks, first come, first serve. But if you want to look on with me, you don't need to, but I'll read it to you. But if you have one, in uh, page 47, he deals with this thing about the Nicolotians, Nicolations, Nicolations, my life. Okay. Um, first of all, what it means is Nico means to overthrow or to conquer. And Latians or Laos, in, it means laity. It is the conquering of the laity. It's part of the papal structure or the religious guard where we elevate the leader of the church we will see they restricted who got copies of the Scriptures. They did the services in Latin. There was this ecclesiastical order. And the normal laity of the church, like in the first generation around Jesus, he spoke to the poor and the broken. Come, right? What we'll see here is they were a group that did several things wrong, but one was there was the control. The Nicolaitans or the... They were ones who had taken away from the people of the church the connection with God. The way you get to God is through the leader. We don't ever see that today in the in the charismatic church, right? It's We're all one, right? And so he also warned that they also were the ones that believed there was a license to sin in the sensuality. That you could have, remember, there was... A, a lot of defilements in the churches that um, were church prostitution. You think about that. Go to church and hook up with a prostitute. It's beyond thinking how that would but anyway, there was this idea that the spirit was separate from the flesh and therefore just pursue spiritual things. Flesh doesn't matter. Where is that in the New Testament? <laughs> Galatians chapter 5 kind of blows holes all over that, right? Okay. So I want you to see that he says, I hate them too. Jesus says, you ha- I, I, I favor this about you. You hate this defilement and this absolute apostate thinking of separating my people from me. I hate them too. And therefore, it credits to you. Let's read on. Message of the church of Smyrna. Now, Smyrna was the one that had gone through tremendous trial. If you go back again to your listing there, right? Smyrna was the persecuted church up until about 300 AD. So, this is the start of a second, third generation church from Christ. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Smyrna. This is the message from the one who's first and last, who was dead but is now alive. I know your suffering, I know your poverty but you're rich. Compare that now to the Laodicean church, right? I know the blasphemy. See, it's not all about the it and all the pretty stuff. It's about what's really going on inside, right? That's what he's saying is you're really rich. I know you're suffering your poverty, you're rich. The blaspheming of the, those opposing you. I know the blaspheming of those who oppose you. They say they're Jews, but they're not because they're actually of the synagogue that belongs to Satan. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. The devil will throw some of you into prison to test you. You will suffer for 10 days. Just hold that thought for a minute. We'll come back. You will suffer for 10 days, but if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what He's saying to the churches. Whoever is victorious will not be harmed by the second death. Another important statement. Second death is the the judgment at the great white throne judgment of all those who've never believed. If you will stay victorious, and even in the face of martyrdom, you'll never see that death, that second death, right? That's 1 Corinthians 15. Read that last Sunday as well. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? Right? In that pro- prophecy by, he said, I got it directly from the Lord, right? He said, in that point where the, the trumpet sounds and the dead in Christ are raised first, and then we who are alive will call, be caught up together with them, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. It's this promise of this place where you're not going to see death. Terry and I, Pastor Terry and I have talked about this. I wonder what it was like. He's read a lot of the martyrdom books, and who was it, the guy who was burned at the stake and didn't seem to even phase him? Ignatius, yeah. The, maybe there's this veil. I don't know. Maybe it's wishful thinking. I don't know. But there's something about that place where this thin veil, we, we make such a big deal of it, and I, and I understand it, but there's such a thin veil between death and life. How fragile is the more we walk this, the we realize how fragile this thing is, right? And so he just says, "You're not going to taste it. Keep your perspective on what is going on, because if they come for you, you will not taste that death." Ten days. Um, let me again. I'll ask you to kind of look at in that page fifty one in your out in your book deals with the whole church at Smyrna, and. It's the faithful church in persecution. This is Lahaye and some of the commentaries' belief about what's his statement of the 10 days. We know from Daniel's prophecy, right, in the seven-year period, Daniel deals, and we'll look at this in a couple weeks, we're going to put all the prophecies together. We're going to line them all up, Old Testament and New. It's going to be clear about, whoa, the picture of this thing is like, it's getting clearer. Well, what Daniel deals, remember the days? There's a number of days and how many days, and they try to figure out, How many years does that correlate? Because a day is like a year, like Peter says, a thousand thousand days a year. A thousand years is one day with the Lord. Well, what the commentators believe here, these 10 days are actually 10 Roman emperors who persecuted the church during the period of the church of Smyrna. Nero was the top one, but then it goes on. Domitian, Tarjan, Marcus Aurelius, Severnus, Maximus. Decius, Valoran, Aurela, up to Diasa, Diocletian, up until 305, at which point, what happens? Anybody know your history there? You? Say it again. Constantine. Actually, I think it's is his mama or his grandma, but, you know, they have a lot of power over those mamas and grandmas, right? And uh, Constantine then recognizes, he actually, it goes into some detail, he had a vision He reports in some of his writings, Constantine had a vision. And anyway, he converts, he says, and at that point, Rome acknowledges that the the church religion, it's the good news, the church religion or the acceptance, no more persecution, freedom, right? That's good for about 100 years. (laughs) And then, uh uh-oh, we start getting all this dark age stuff coming in. Um, But I want us to see that... The 10 days represent, you will be persecuted during this season. Remember, this is the historical perspective that that church represents over 150 years. It's the great persecution. Over 5 million Christians fed to the lions. If you've ever been to Rome and you've seen the Colosseums, the lighting of Christians dipped in tar, burning in the midst of the, keeping lights on by burning Christians. Some of the things they did were just incredible under, and and some of them tried so hard, in fact, the worst of the worst was the last one, and we see from that in the midst of that persecution, the church thrives. What is it about that that causes? We see that in the Chinese church, right? Dennis Balcom, who's a, a major evangelist, in, in, we've met him. Terry and I, have, Pastor Terry and I, have met him. He's led over a million and a half Chinese. He came to Voice of the Apostles, and he shared privately how. They meet in caves and quiet things. This week, one of our veterans came to me this week and he said, are you seeing what's going on in China? They're getting inputs. They're burning churches. Christian churches are being burned to the ground. They've arrested the pastor, the senior leader, and the church is still meeting outside the burnt church in defiance. The church grows in the midst of that. It's when we get lazy and have too much that sometimes we lose our fire. And so that 10 days, I believe, represents what Jesus was saying prophetically is there's going to be a season here where you're going to go through a lot, of, a lot of trial and tribulation, but don't give up. Even if they come, it's interesting, he says here, even in facing death, because that's how many of them face death during that period. All right, let's pick up in verse 12. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Pergamos. The message from the one who is the sharp has the, two sharp, the sharp two-edged sword. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne. I don't like that city. Woo-hoo. Yet you have remained loyal to me. You refuse to deny me even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan's city. We'll come back to that in just a minute. But I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some of those who teach. Is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have some Nicolotians, Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. Repent of your sin, or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Anyone with ears to hear, must listen to the Spirit and understand what He is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven. Now, that's a wild statement. There's some hidden manna in heaven. And some of those guys get to eat of that. What is that about? And I will give to each one a white stone. And on the white stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. A lot of promises there. Hidden manna, victoriously, white stones, new names. Whew, glory to God. I wonder if our name tag in the new city, you'll be, what, what's your name going to look like? Anyway, get excited. All right, what, what about this? Um, we got Balaam and Balak. What's that all about? And what about those who you they remained faithful when my faithful servant Antipas was martyred among Satan's city. What is that? Okay. Well, let's look at um, if you turn to page 57 in your if you have your book. The church at Pergamon. It turns out, I did some history on study on this one. John planted the church at Pergamus. And he ordained a pastor, and his name, as you might imagine, (laughs) was Antipas. He was the senior pastor of the church there. And there was such vile stuff going on in that city. He was a deliverance guy. And in fact, they burned him in an altar in the shape of a bull, burned him alive because he did deliverance. Hello? And Jesus takes note of that in heaven. You remain fit. Can you imagine if they took off your senior pastor and burned him outside? And you all said, we don't care. We continue on. Amen, right? I'm not prophesying that, but I'm just saying. I would like you to do that, right? And so the point of that is Jesus was watching from the scroll book in heaven, Malachi chapter 3, of everything that's recorded in the book, of those who love him, and those who love to speak about him, doesn't miss a jot or a tittle or a moment. He saw that and he said, you remain faithful. Even when they took your senior leader out and they burned him in front of you, you remained there faithful. He says, I like that about you. So we see, again, during this period of time, it was an awful experience. They were trying to shut down the people of the way. Let's read on. The message to the church, let's see, am I in the right place? Uh, Pergamus. let's see here, yeah. Balaam and Balak, I want to pick up and talk about that. Do you remember the story of Balaam and Balak in Numbers chapter 22 through 28? Just a quick summary there. Israel comes into the land and Balak, the king, says, we got to curse these guys. So he goes and finds a sorcerer named Balaam. And he pays him some big bucks and he says, I'm paying you to prophesy destruction and curses over these guys. And every time the sorcerer opens his mouth, a blessing comes out over Israel. And finally, the king says, that's done. I'm paying you to curse these guys. He says, I can't. I can't. I can't. There's nothing. They have no, I have no open door to access sin upon them or, or bring death and destruction. I don't have a way. That'll preach. Righteousness is a weapon of offense and defense. Remember what Jesus says, Satan's coming to get me in the garden. There's nothing to work with in me. <laughs> come, let us go, right? So what we see here is, so the sorcerer has, I got an idea. You know how men can be corrupted, right? Let's go get some loose women, these Moabite women. Let's have some party time, and we'll get them to fornicate with them, and that'll be an open door, and then I can come in and curse them. And that's exactly what happened. So what's Jesus telling us through the the revelation here is. There is not only this place where there's such torment coming against the church leadership, they're being martyred, and you. But there's also I have a few complaints. You tolerate, you allow teaching about sexual immorality and sin to be prevalent. You don't teach to preach the word that my people can understand this. Therefore, you're just as bad as the spirit of Balaam and Balak. In fact, we know that in the book of Jude. Go back just before Revelation. Jesus' half-brother Jude speaks. He says, I was going to talk to you about evangelism and encourage you, but I can't do that based on the false prophets that have now come into the church. Jude says, I must identify to you three spirits that are now prevalent in the church. And one of them listed there is that spirit of witchcraft out of Balaam and Balak. The other one is the sin of the older brother, the sin of murder, and jealousy. You can look at that in Jude, the one chapter that's there. But again, the consistency in Scripture that we see, and what he's saying is, you have tolerated this sin of defilement of immorality and witchcraft, the mixing of world systems in the church. I don't like this about you. Change it, or I'll take your lampstand. Ooh, that'll preach! I don't know about you, but it does something right here. All right, let's pick up chapter verse eighteen. The message to the church at Thyatira. Write this letter to the angel of the church of Thyatira. The message from the, one, the from the Son of God. Whose eyes are like flames of fire and whose feet are like polished bronze. I know all the things that you do. Just that statement. He knows everything that is going on in this church right now. That ought to humble us. When we think somebody doesn't see what's going on, he says, I see. I know how you're being persecuted. I know who's gossiping against you. I know how you're being judged. I know all that. I see your faith. I see your love. I see your service. I see your patient endurance. I I see it. mm. Can you and I can see your constant improvement in all these things? They improve their love, their faith, their service, and their endurance. He says, I see your constant, it's not everything in one day. I see constantly how you're growing in your love for me. How patient you have endured the things that have come against you. But I have this complaint against you. You're permitting this woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, here's the false prophet, to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin, to eat foods offered to idols. I gave her time to repent. She did not Didn't want to turn from her immorality. Therefore, I will throw her on a bed of suffering. And those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly unless they repent and turn away from their evil deeds. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches out the thoughts and the intentions of every person. And I will give each of you whatever you deserve. John, remember John, he's getting this download. It's like... But I also have a message for the rest of you at Thyratyra who have not followed this false teaching. Deeper truths, they call them. They're actually depths of Satan. See, a teaching was going out in the church that was being embraced by some of the, le- the some of the people at Thyatira, but there were others that, hadn't, that didn't buy into it. We have this deeper revelation of things, actually, Satan's truths. Mm-hmm. I will ask nothing more of you except that you hold tight to what you have until I come. To all who are victorious and obey me to the very end, to them I will give authority over the nations. Well, come on, what a pro. Huh? This is the ruling and reigning. They will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. They will have the same authority I received from my Father, and I will also give them the morning star. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what He is saying to the churches. I mean, what in the world a promise that one is? The same authority that Jesus got from the Father, ruling over nations? thats I don't have a clue how big that is, guys. I just, I'm just letting you know that, wow. So there was this Jezebel. You, you probably have studied Jezebel. We know who she was as a real person. She was a wicked a wicked queen, right, involved in all sorts of murder and everything. We know she, she gets her due, right? She gets uh, knocked off a ledge and eaten by dogs, and yeah, she doesn't end up too cool. Um, we also know that Jezebel is a spirit, and it's not just a female spirit. I've seen it in males. It is an, it's a spirit that undermines legitimate authority, whether it's in a business, a school, a church, a house. It, under, it undermines legitimate authority and tries to rule and reign. Can do it both sexually through all sorts of manipulation and control. Sometimes they use money. I give a lot to the church, therefore I ought to have influence over you. Not in this church. Anyway, so I'm just saying that there's this spirit that was permeated and allowed, and again, there was immorality. The eating of food, the, the commentaries talk about this several times. The giving or eating of food that's been offered to idols is often a corollary to compromise with the world. Think of it this way we're supposed to be different, right? As Christians, we're not of this world. What you, I, I think it was Jason sharing, I might, have, Jason, I might have shared this Monday night the men's group. Um, how you get entertained. What happens on New Year's Eve or happy hour ought to be different from the rest of the world. So if we partner with the world, if we're no different than the world, then what he's saying is you're just eating food offered to idols. You've used the idolatry of the world, the pleasures, and the seeking after those things as a substitute, and I don't like that about you. Okay, moving right along. Let's look at the church at Sardis. Chapter 3, verse 1. Write this letter to the angel of the church at Sardis. This is the message from the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. We looked at that in Isaiah last week, right? Sevenfold spirits. I know all the things that you do and that you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Wake up. Strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. I have found that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Consider your ways. Our verse for the year. We're in a 21-day fast. Consider your ways. Go read Haggai 1 and 2. Consider your ways. What, this book is replete with where are you? Do you know where you're at? you think you're okay? You're not okay. Look at these things. What are these defilements? How have I... It's a good time to do that. Go back and, to what you heard and believed at first and hold to it firmly. Repent and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I will come suddenly as unexpected as a thief. Yet there are some in the church at Sardis They've not soiled their clothes with evil. Remember what we read last week, Revelation 19? The bride has made herself ready. The garments she will be wearing at the wedding feast of the Lamb are the good deeds done by by the people of God. Here's another flashback. There's some in Sardis. They're not wearing those dirty clothes. They will walk with me in white for they're worthy. All who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life. I will announce before my Father and His angels that they are mine. Whew. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what He's saying to the churches. You know, if you look at this, the books shall be opened. Daniel, book of Daniel says the books. Revelation says there's the books of life, the books of works that are done. It says, it says here... I don't know how that takes place in heaven. Is it going to be, dun, 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 dun. let me introduce you to my daughter, Mary Esther. Here she is, right? It's like, wow. And, you know, it's kind of like n- night to shine when they come down the, the thing, right? It's me. I, I don't know how that's going to work, but it certainly could be that. And, and again, your eye has not seen nor has your ear heard what I have prepared for those. But it says, I'm going to announce your name. And your name is never going to get erased from the book of life. Message to the church at Philadelphia. It's the Church of Brotherly Love, number seven there. It's also the missionary church. I'm going to read a little bit here in a minute, but I want to just read this caption here. It says, this, write to the angel of the church at Philadelphia. This is the message from the one who is holy and true. The one who has the key of David... What He opens, no one can close, and what He closes, no one can open. I know all the things that you do. I have opened a door for you that no one can close. Whew, that was a lot about our prayer this morning. There's a new beginning. There's this new season. The butterfly was coming out of the cocoon. It was, there was so much confirmation of what God is going to do in this season. He said, no one's going to close that door. I know you have little strength. You're feeling pretty weak. <laughs> Yet, you've obeyed my word and you did not deny me. Look, I will force those who belong to Satan's synagogue. I'm going to force them. Those liars who say they're Jews, but they're not, to come and bow down at your feet. They will acknowledge that you are the ones that I love. Now, how's he going to do that? He's going to grab him by the neck and bow to my son. woo Like... They had it right, and you didn't. They're like, how, whoa. I mean, it's going to be dramatic. I don't think it's going to be, oh, everything's wonderful. now. it's going to be a lot of drama, at least until it gets flowing. Because you have obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. Now, this is a key verse that the pre-tribbers use. And I think it's a valid one. Verse 10 there says, because you have obeyed my command to persevere. What does that look like? Perseverance against sin, temptation, torment, not renouncing faith. Because Jesus said, when I come, will I find faith when I come back? So he says, you persevered and you've kept my commandments. Because you've done that, I will protect you from the great time. This This is not any time. This is the great time of testing. The hour, it says, the King James says, I will keep you from the hour of that temptation. It's that period that you have not denied me. I will keep you from that which is coming on the whole world. I think that's a good pre-trib verse. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. You have a crown. You've got a crown. I don't know how many diamonds are in each one's crown, but they've got a crown. All who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God. They will never have to leave it. And I will write on them the name of my God, and they will be the citizens in the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven of my God. And I will write on them my new name. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to what the Spirit and understand what He's saying to the churches. There's a, in the commentary here, or in the write-up that LaHaye does, on page 78, again, this is just a interesting input. That missionary movement that really took place in the 1700s, where the Western movement, probably the greatest since Paul's missionary journeys, um, he, he talks about who some of them were. The faith missionary movement that really was birthed. The first missionary, anybody know the first missionary's name? I didn't know this. William Carey, actually. William Carey, well, it's in 1793, he says that there was a first foreign missionary during this season. William Carey, he was a, he was a basically, he went to India. He was a, a shoeman. He was a cobbler. He took care of shoes. And he got so, at this point, they're making available the scriptures. And he reads the scriptures. He goes, we got to do the Great Commission. And he goes to India. You ever been to India? Hello. That's a tough place to minister. All right. Well, he goes, and we see there the faith missionary movement is birthed during this period. And we see people like David Livingston and Jonathan Goforth. It's interesting, Jonathan Goforth. He went forth. Literally, thousands of people go to Africa, China, Japan, Korea, India, and the missionary movement is, is birthed during this. They had they were so moved by the scriptures when they read the book of Revelation. And they read the fact that Jesus was coming back. The second coming prompted so many of these people, we got to do something. we got to get ready. There's a lot of people. we got to get them. And so they went and they sacrificed their lives and their families, many of them, for this missionary movement. But it was a spirit over the church at that point, the Church of Brotherly Love, that missionary movement that fazed, kind of developed a lot of where the church is today worldwide. All right, let's... Uh, in the closing moments here, let's finish this last church. Verse 14, Revelation three fourteen. the message to the church at Laodicea. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Laodicea. This is the message from the one who is the amen, <laughs> the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. I know all the things you do that you are neither hot or cold, I wish that you were one or the other, but you're lukewarm water, neither hot or cold. I will spit you out of my mouth. You say I'm rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. You don't realize you're wretched. You're miserable. You're poor, and you're blind. How would you like that job description? you imagine sitting there in a job description interview with your boss and having him say, you, how do you think you're doing? I'm doing really great. I, I'm doing it. You're a wretched, poor, blind. You're a mess. I mean, golly, that would be a really tough job description. Kind of a performance improvement plan, we used to call them in General Electric. You'd be on a pip and a quick. And so, don't you realize that you are wretched, miserable, poor, and blind, and naked? I advise you, you better buy gold for me. Gold that has been purified by fire. Then you will be rich. Also buy white garments from me, so you'll be not ashamed by your nakedness. Imagine getting invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb, and you think you're clothed, and you're not. (laughs) You think. Buy white garments, and you'll not be ashamed of your nakedness. An ointment for your eyes, so you'll be able to see. I correct, and I discipline everyone that I love. Now, that's that's good news. This is not, you're such a wretched mess. I, you, there's no hope for you. He says, do this because I discipline those who are not on track. Be diligent. Be diligent. The word for this year is be deliberate, right, Mom? Intentional. 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 The deliberate church. In fact, a couple weeks ago, it was The church that's diligent that has oil in her lamps was one of the words. What he's saying is you need to be deliberate in what you're doing. Consider your ways and be deliberate. And then he goes on, he goes, behold, (laughs) if you bought this gold and you're deliberate and you turn away from your indifference, look, I'll stand at your door and I will knock and I'll invite you. Come and open the door. I'll come in. He's he's the one out there knocking. Before there was an open door in heaven for that church, but now he's saying, I'm at the door, but you're going to have to open it. You're going to have to invite me in by your diligent approach to life. I'm knocking. I'm, I'm knocking on your heart. I'm knocking on the circumstances. If you'll open it, I'll come in and sup with you. I'll have communion with you. You're going to have to open the door because you've walked away so wretchedly and naked and blind. In your prideful arrogance, you think you're all this and you're not. That's a humbling word. That ought to get us like, we need to consider our ways. The problem is, Dave Hedlund says, the problem with deception is you don't know you're deceived. In fact, it's probably worse than that. Let's finish. He says, I stand at the door and I will come in and sup with you and you and he with me. 21, to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne. Hello. I don't even, I don't know about you, but the idea of you sitting on the same throne as the king of all kings, maybe it's just my unworthiness or like, huh? I know that. James and John's mama negotiated with Jesus. Can my son sit like and let? You don't know what you're asking, mama. Oh, yeah, I do. Okay. Can they taste the cup of wrath that I'm about? Oh, yeah. Her first son was martyred, first martyred, James, first apostle. We know John was the one who ushered in the disciple whom he loved. He lived the longest and gave this great revelation to us. To him who overcomes will be granted to sit on the throne, even as I also overcame, and I now am sitting with my Father on His throne. He that has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying unto the churches. Let's just read verse 1 of chapter 4 and we'll be done. After this, so He addresses all these churches, does their performance appraisal. And then he says, After this I looked, and behold, a door was open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was as it was like a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show you the things which must be hereafter. Remember, we read last week about the rapture when the trumpet sounds, and the dead in Christ shall be raised first, and that we who are alive shall be caught up together with them with the Lord in the twinkling of an eye. So there's a trumpet blast. Many believe it coincides with some of the feast days, the Feast of Trumpets. I don't know. It's an interesting thought. And if you look at the correlation of when Christ was crucified and what, what it was there during the Passover and then what happened 40 days later with Pentecost and what happened. So God's timetable and His clock is ticking away here. So let's, uh, let's stand If kind of next week, if you would read on to chapter 4 and chapter 5, and obviously read it with this, Lord, but I would encourage you to, again, read through these church commendations or look at your handout. What were the the things that Jesus saw in the attributes of them that He commended them for? Because that's what we want to pray, and pray into it. Be deliberate in your fast time. Pray into, Lord, those are the things, I would love to hear you say those things about me. Lord, if there's a gap here, remember he said, Paul says, judge yourself and you'll be not judged. If we'll judge ourselves on these, Lord, if there's a gap here, right, here's the expectation, but here's where I'm at. And that gap analysis, what do I need to do, Lord, to close the gap that I might hear what you're saying? And so, Lord, pray through those. You commended this church. Lord, is there anything? Ask the Holy Spirit. James 1 says, if you lack wisdom, ask the Holy Spirit. He'll show you. And what will happen is He'll bring revelation to you. Why? Because whom I love, I discipline. Would you rather do it with Him asking, how can I do better? Or would you like to go to the woodshed? We can do this the easy way or the hard way, son, daughter. And so I believe this is a really good way. It's specific, and it's using the Word of God, which is full of living power, Hebrews 4, to cut between our soulless realm, our mind and our will, and our emotions. And we ask the spirit man to come in line with the Spirit of God. He's the teacher. So, Lord, I just thank you right now, in Jesus' name, thank you for your Word, God, that you didn't leave us out here, the B-I-B-L-E, right? The basic instruction book before leaving earth. Lord, we got basic instructions here before the rapture of the church. It's the the manual that we're supposed to look at and figure out how this machine is supposed to operate in the kingdom. And we ask you, Lord, to bring it to us, reveal it to us. Do some oil changes, God. This week, show us some things. Boy, these are prayers that, oh, Lord, okay, you know what, you're praying, Tom. So, Lord, I just pray right now in Jesus' name, the revelation of all that you're doing here. Make this book alive for us, God, so we're better for it. And make a, the, the team, this, this whole group, excited about what they might see. Perk their eyesight and ears. When they hear a, a what's going on in the earth, they'll say, wow, I wonder how that fits. So, Lord, I thank you that you're not going to leave us ignorant of the Satan's devices. And we thank you now in Jesus' name. Don't forget, uh, 7 o'clock, Friday night, the burn. We'll see you then. Praise God.